Hello world and welcome to Her Royal Science. We're coming to you from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. And today we'll be speaking to an incredibly talented individual, Sarah Luedi. She is a research technician at UBC, working on developing immunotherapies for Alzheimer's disease and ALS under the supervision of Dr. Neil Cashman. So you and I have had a number of conversations about mental health, about graduate school, and about finding balance within oneself. So I thought we could talk about that interplay today. But before we get started, what's your story? All right. Thanks for having me here of today, Asma. Um, I think it's truly privileged and a big like chance to have uh, the time and space to share stories from grad students mm -hmm. and to be able to speak on such a important and also controversial at time topic. Mm -hmm. um, so here's my story. I uh, studied at UBC in my undergrad. When I came to Vancouver from Tunisia, which is um, Northern Africa, and that's where I grew up, mm -hmm. uh, I really had no idea that I would get into science uh, the way I did at the end. I really? thought I was going to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, research was not something that um, I was exposed to before. Uh, it was something that was very abstract, like being a scientist and wearing a lab coat or whatever. And even undergrad, when people spoke about research, it felt like this uh, unattainable thing that was uh, only for the elite. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, when I started volunteering in the Cashman lab, for me, it was just like a chance to dabble in it, see what it was about. Um, it was a great opportunity to be able to volunteer there for a um, full summer. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, at the time, I applied to medical school and I did not get in. Mm -hmm. So uh, my supervisor, Camille, uh, offered me a position in the lab to pursue a master's uh, thesis. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, maybe I could do this. <laughs> so uh, I got in not really knowing what to expect. There was no course on how to be a grad student. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, I spoke to other grad students. Everybody had their own. Uh, experience with it but what kept me in research I think is uh, a lot for project management mm -hmm. uh, I've always enjoyed planning things yeah. managing projects um, and that's a big part of what we do in research mm -hmm. um, and what, that's what keeps me there now even though I'm still aspiring to pursue a clinical path I do find a lot of enjoyment in what I do. What was it about the medical field that drew it to you in the first place? Was it the helping people or what was the thing that made you go, I really just want to be a medical doctor? Well, it's funny because growing up, that was the last thing I wanted to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Again, another, uh, it felt like a calling at some point later on, but growing up, I wanted to be a psychologist. Mm. Um, I read this book called Silky's World mm -hmm. that really uh, explores uh, the history of philosophy uh, from uh, Egyptian times with Euclid. Uh, Thales, all the way to contemporary philosophers, and I came across Freud's section. Yeah. And as a 14-year-old, that was very impressionable. Oh, psychoanalysis, amazing. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to be a psychoanalyst mm -hmm. at the time because of this. And then looking into opportunities back in Tunisia um, and how I could really address issues that I saw around me, around mm -hmm. depression and anxiety mm -hmm. uh, with the friends I had at the time. Um, I thought perhaps medicine would allow me to achieve that goal more effectively where I was. Okay. And my dad had a heart attack uh, in my last year of high school. And mm -hmm. I really, um, actually really enjoyed uh, taking care of him. Uh, it oh, sounds a little odd to say, but yeah. uh, I was caring for him at home, changing his band-aid after his open heart surgery, mm -hmm. administering some subcutaneous injections. And I thought, oh, wow, this is something I actually enjoy learning about and doing. Mm -hmm. So that uh, refocused me into medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where it came from. And then I had other ideas and projects that I wanted to expand on mm -hmm. related to psychiatry and neurology that 
That would be a story for a different day, maybe. Oh, okay. So I do have one more question about that. Mm-hmm. Since it was a heart-related condition, was your first impression in the world of medicine wanting you to go into, like, cardiology? Is, is that what really opened up your eyes? It was the heart that you fell in love with, or was it just the medicine that you fell in love with? No, I never... I didn't have an interest in the heart. I still had an interest in the brain. Okay, time. okay. So psychiatry Makes was sense. My, uh, my, cho- my first choice, yeah. and then kind of evolved into neurology. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it's mainly the patient-doctor interactions that I could witness between my dad and his doctors mm-hmm. and living nurses. Um, I loved going to the hospital. It was it was interesting because I had very mixed feelings. I was very worried about my dad of course. at the time. Yeah. But I'd go there and like, I'd smell like the hospital and think, ooh, I'd love to work here. <laughs> it was really odd. I thought, wow, this is where I belong. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed speaking with his care aides. Uh, I think it was really problem-solving, too, was something I really liked mm-hmm. was that there's a problem how to use your knowledge in science and uh, human anatomy and human biology to solve that problem yeah uh, and i did really enjoy my uh, life science courses at the time too so why do you think mental health often gets overlooked in academia oh my goodness it's a good question <laughs> um Oh, there are many reasons. One, I'd say there are certain expectations in academia. Um, This seems to be this idea that you have to prove yourself when you start, that you have to pay your dues and slave away a few years um, before you get to become a PI. So I've spoken to people who are further in their career and I'd say something like, oh, I was here this weekend. Oh, the student, that student was here yesterday very late. And that person said to me, yeah, I did that too at the Mm -hmm. I don't do it anymore, but I had to do it as a student. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be an expectation for people to go above and beyond um, that way. Uh, So because of that expectation, people feel like, oh, I should not complain because that's part of what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is um, a lack of, not say a lack, but uh, I remember it took me a long time to come to the realization that I needed help or that I didn't feel well because I was not listening to my needs. Mm-hmm. I was so focused on what's going on around me mm-hmm. that I didn't feel like I deserved for you know for my needs to be heard by mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps there aren't there isn't space for these conversations to happen between supervisors and their students. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of supervisors do care. Yeah. They like if I've had a wonderful experience with my own supervisor mm-hmm. where he made that space yeah. and um, made it very easy for me to talk to him when I needed help. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't happen for everybody. Mm-hmm. A lot of students don't have that initial conversation with their PR and what the expectations are in their job. Yeah. So they have to guess on their own what is expected. Mm-hmm. And often they guess very high. They mm-hmm. expect them to do amazing. Right? So with Dr. Cashman, were the expectations outlined when you immediately started your job or did you have to ask him and there was just a comfort in you being able to ask him? Oh, with Neil, things happened very gradually and mm-hmm. beautifully too. So when I started, I was a volunteer in the lab and a few weeks then he invited me to his office because he wanted to hear about my ambitions and where I wanted to go with from there. Mm-hmm. It was so beautiful that he made time at the time I thought, Oh wow, this neurologist, PI, yeah. making an hour, taking an hour out of his time to talk to this new volunteer about her aspirations in lab mm-hmm. and life. So I really valued that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gave me a chance to talk about my dreams and where I wanted to go. And he made it clear that his role there was to support me to get where I wanted to go. And if there was a space in the lab for me to also contribute, mm-hmm. that was also an option. Mm-hmm. So from the get-go, he established that relationship of support and mentorship. Yeah. Um, he came across to me as someone who was very vulnerable too. He was not just a scientist, he was a human being. Right. 
Um, and that's something that happened with us. I can't speak for the students mm -hmm. in the lab, but I can speak from experience with him. So he made himself very vulnerable, and he asked me a few questions as well about mental health. Uh, because I've shared some things about my past that have driven me to wanting to get into healthcare. Mm -hmm. He said to me, well, if you ever feel like you're, if you ever feel depressed, or if you ever feel on the edge, I, I hope that you feel comfortable talking to me about it. Mm -hmm. So this happened when I was a volunteer, before I yeah. even considered being a graduate student. Yeah. And then as part of my program in experimental medicine, when I applied to be a master's student, mm -hmm. uh, we had a form to fill about expectations, and that was mandatory. So okay. there were a list of expectations from the students and there were a list of expectations from the PI. Mm. And we had to make time with our PI to discuss these expectations and sign that and return it to uh, the head of the department. Okay. That was amazing because uh, some things were, they were kind of like self-explanatory and I thought, duh. But I thought, you know what, it's nice that we talk about them. Yeah. So for example, one of them was that the student had to uh, make an effort to apply to conferences or to publish and that had to come from me so that was nice to talk about that Neil was not going to hold my hand and say I'm going to send you there you're going to do this um, but there's also an expectation from him to support me financially and support me with mentorship and we spoke about that as Good. well yeah um, there was talk as well about updates on progress so it was my responsibility to make sure that I update Neil on my progress regularly so mm -hmm. I made it a point to go every month knock on his door and say Neil, I didn't tell you what's going on. Yeah. Even if I didn't have much, you needed to know what's going on. Yeah. So establishing that relationship was extremely important because when I needed him, mm -hmm. I felt comfortable knocking on his door. Okay. And I think a lot of students get intimidated by their PI where they don't feel like, oh, I can show myself as a vulnerable person to them because they will think less of me. Or, ooh, this PI with like glasses and like, you know, you know the image we have of a, a scientist, yeah. right? Oh, this person has no no feelings or they won't understand mm -hmm. or um, but for me it was important that Neil came across as a human being first to me mm -hmm. there's that and the fact also that he modeled uh, he gave me a good model for balancing life and work mm -hmm. so I know that his family is important to him yeah. um, and he'd often say yeah I'm going on vacation with my family or I'm spending time with my wife mm -hmm. and because I saw him model that and make time to spend time with his loved ones mm -hmm. and it was okay for me to do the same so do you think a lot of PIs end up modeling bad behavior and then we mimic that behavior? Is that the trap a lot of us end up falling into, do you think? Just from your almost outsider-looking-in perspective, because you have had a quite unique experience. It's hard to say because every PI is different, mm -hmm. right? Um, I've heard PIs say, yeah, this is science, <laughs> right? Yeah. I've seen PIs message their their students late on a Saturday night, text message them. Expecting a response? And expecting a response, <laughs> right? So if your PI sends you an email at 2 a.m. on a Saturday, you think, well, my PI is working, maybe I should be working too. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've seen some behavior. I mean, I don't want to label it as bad. Everybody has a choice on mm. what they want to prioritize. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of finding a good fit. Mm. If you're someone who has aspirations in academia yeah. that are like, oh, I want to be working in the lab 14 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm -hmm. I want to achieve this and this and this. Then maybe a PI who does the same is a good fit. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're someone who values life, I mean, family life balance with work, and mm -hmm. you had a lot of people like that in my lab, mm -hmm. perhaps a different PI is a different, would be a better fit. I don't know. Mm -hmm. We also had postdocs in my lab and students who modeled that behavior. Mm -hmm. So when I joined the lab as a volunteer, 
asked, oh, can I volunteer nine to five every day? And there was a bit of a chuckle around the table. And they said, well, only if you want to babysit, maybe. A lot of us leave at 3 p.m. because we have young children. Yeah. And I was shocked. Yeah. I thought, but you guys are scientists. You're supposed to be here till like seven. You see people in other labs here till seven or nine. Yeah. They said, yeah. why in our lab, we leave a lot earlier because we have young kids we need to go pick up. Mm. Um, and we work from home. And that's work too. Yeah. So there was one student at the time who left around two or three every day. He'd come at nine, worked nonstop till three. He, he took breaks. And he'd say, that's it, I'm done. And he'll often say, hey, you're leaving early. And he says, yeah, I have young kids and they're my priority. Mm-hmm. And I'll work from home later tonight when my kids go to bed. Mm-hmm. And he told me a valuable thing. He said, one time I said to him, oh, I'm going, coming to the lab Saturday. He said, why? He said, well, because I have cells or whatever mm-hmm. to take care of often. He said, can that wait Monday? And I said, no. He said, why can't it wait Monday? <laughs> Is it that urgent? And I said, not really, but if I wait till Monday, it would make things slow down. Mm-hmm. And he said... You know, if you get yourself and your surroundings used to coming on weekends and working over time, mm-hmm. you will never stop because that will become an expectation. Yeah. And he never comes on weekends. And yeah. he finished his thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very productive. Mm-hmm. He just managed his time in a way that, okay, I have a few hours a day in the lab. Yeah. I'm going to make the best of it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do my writing at home, my writing and reading. He read on the bus mm-hmm. every day. Yeah. He read papers. He wrote and edited papers on the bus. And to me, that was a valuable lesson of compartmentalizing things and mm. making sure important things got, you know, the time they deserve. Yeah. So with respect to mental health, because you have a PI who's so cognizant of the well-being of everyone in his lab, would you say that most people either feel comfortable coming to him to speak about any mental health issues or no? Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to get into details of my lab because I don't want to speak for other people, yeah, right? But um, I think it's a two-way street. Yes. I mean, the PI can open the door mm-hmm. and we need to encourage students and employees to come forward as well. Mm-hmm. I've been on both ends. I've been an employee and I've been an employer or manager mm-hmm. in other settings. Yeah. And as a manager, as much time as you put an effort into making sure people are comfortable, mm-hmm. there are things you don't know until the person tells you. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going through hardship and I try so hard to show that I got it together, right? Yeah. Neil was not going to know. He's not going to guess. So he's going to expect that the deadlines are met. Mm-hmm. And if they're not met, obviously, there's going to be disappointment yeah. and frustration. But if I come forward from the beginning or even midway through and say, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not going to work because of this, mm-hmm. as long as there's clarity on my side, I think he can act on that. So I always encourage students to be honest mm-hmm. with their PIs, to go forward and say, you know, if you're feeling depressed, why don't you tell a PI? Oh, we don't have that relationship. And I'm like, well... Mm-hmm. Even if your PI doesn't make that step forward and doesn't meet you halfway, you can also you can make that step yeah. towards them and open that door. Mm-hmm. And I know it's hard. It's really, really hard. What was it like for you? Did What was that conversation like? Was there a little bit of you got to work yourself up to be able to have that conversation with Neil to say, I'm not feeling that well and this is what's happening with me? Or how do you even open that conversation? Uh as I said, yeah, because he had opened the door, yeah. he said to me, I hope you will feel comfortable doing that. I felt like I made him a promise. Mm. <laughs> so when the time came, it was really bad. It was my second year of grad studies, and I had so much going on in my life. It wasn't the stress and the depressive feel, depressed feelings didn't come from grad studies. They came from everything coming together at the time. Um, and I went... I was at rock bottom at the time and I felt like I could not be counted on or relied on at the time. So I felt 
Like, it was almost my duty and responsibility to let my employer know that he could not count on me. Mm-hmm. But because he had opened the door before, he said, when you feel that way, please come. Yeah. It wasn't difficult. I just, I went to his office. He happened to be there that day. And I said, you know, can, 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 can we speak? Closed the door and explained what was going on. I said, this is how I'm feeling. This is what's going on. I want I wanted you to be aware of it. Um, and he said, oh, it was such a beautiful conversation because he started giving me a few pieces of advice on what's going on. He said, well, maybe you can prioritize this over this. This is important. This is not that important. And then he said to me, you know, and beyond this week, that was extremely stressful for me. He said, beyond this week, if you feel like you need to take a break from your thesis or even, you know, finish here and without finishing your grad studies, that's an option and nobody will think less of you. Mm. He said, you've accomplished a lot already. So if you want to stop now, that's fine. Mm-hmm. And I will support you. He said, but if you need time to go longer, if you need another year, that's also okay. And okay. the choice is yours. Yeah. So hearing that from wow. the person that I held in high esteem and hearing that from someone who, I put, you know, he's someone of authority. He's a level of authority. He's a neurologist. Oh, wow. He, he said, it's okay. <laughs> if my friend said that, it wouldn't have been that value as valuable as coming from my own supervisor Mm -hmm. and the fact that he gave me these two options and he said you know either way we're not going to think you're stupid Mm -hmm. we're not going to think you're weak or you know weak or uh inadequate Mm -hmm. we support you yeah and i didn't i didn't finish i didn't you know leave my grad studies Mm -hmm. i I finished and Mm -hmm. finished a year later but knowing that that was an option was really nice yeah. And he didn't say it like, oh, maybe you should stop because you can't finish. It was yeah. like, if you want to, that's okay. That's, you're right. Beautiful is the perfect word for it because beyond making sure that your self-esteem and self-image was okay, he wanted you to just take care of yourself, mm-hmm. right? There was an understanding that if you went away and came back, it wasn't like you'd have things docked against you, like your workload wasn't going to pile up. Mm-hmm. There were no repercussions, essentially. Or yeah. did you feel like there were? Did you at any point? Feel like oh there might be repercussions to me even though he had assured you was there any hesitation in your mind no mainly because of the relationship we've cultivated yeah. until that time yeah. because it wasn't oh interview before i get in and then this mm-hmm. we had an ongoing conversation so every month and often it was initiated by myself and often has to be because PIs are very busy. Sometimes they forget who are the students in their lab, right? <laughs> yeah. That happens. Yeah. And it, it doesn't feel good as a student who's been forgotten. It's it's not a nice situation because mm. it's not a situation to aspire to, but it happens. Mm. Uh, so for me I felt there are times I felt a little forgotten or that my project was not at the forefront of what he had mm. in his mind. But I had to make that step go beyond my comfort zone and knock on his door and say, this is what's happening. Uh, and this is what I plan on doing next month. What do you think? Mm-hmm. These are the ideas I have. What do you think? Yeah. Um, and that really helped us, you know, cultivate that relationship where I got to a point where I'm comfortable putting boundaries now. I'm comfortable saying what I need and what I want. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't come right away. It's so difficult, especially yeah. for a student to say, I want this, or I need a race, or mm-hmm. I need time away, mm-hmm. or uh, <laughs> I need less projects. That's extremely difficult, and it takes time and effort on both sides. Absolutely. A thousand percent agree. And I, I can't really speak to the ease with which you went to your PI, because I do also 
I see the hesitation with which people come to my own supervisor because they do hold her in such high esteem and they haven't broken through the humanness aspect. And I think that's a really crucial aspect that you bring up. Um, so where does dance fall into this whole idea of balance for you? Ooh, dance is beautiful. <laughs> um, I mean, it doesn't have to be just dance. So for me, it happens to be dance. Yes. For other people, I've seen it being swimming, running, mm -hmm. painting. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, dance is an amazing way to get into out of my head and get into how I'm feeling and mm. take a break and say, okay, how am I feeling? Yeah. It's a work in progress. <laughs> I'm an extremely anxious person. I'm always thinking, 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 and it's not yeah. necessarily good because I'm not aware of when I'm tired or when I'm... Oh. Like, the analogy I use is that, oh, I'm like this balloon working at 110%, mm. and it seems fine, 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 but then if you add like anything extra, I'm going to explode, and that's not a nice feeling. Yeah. So dance helps me really work on that and mm. being more in check, you know, check in on how I'm feeling. Am I tired? Am I sleep deprived? Because mm. I do need my body. And we, we tend to think that our mind has an infinite capacity. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh, I'm stressed, I can push through. Mm. But my body, I'm really very much aware that I'm very, I don't have an infinite capacity. There's only so much I can bend. There's only so much yeah. I can lift. And yeah. there's only so long I can, I can move. Mm -hmm. So dance helps me with that. We'll see where it goes. Uh, What's your dance story? I don't think I've ever asked you how you like started dancing. Oh, um, so uh, I come from a culture where dance is such an integral part of mm -hmm. our life. Mm -hmm. So in weddings, we dance. Yeah. Uh, often my cousin would put in a song and we dance with my grandma and my cousins at home. Yeah. I used to have fun. Oh, yeah, we did that too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you do, right? Absolutely. People wonder why I have rhythm. They think I went to dance class. And I'm like, no, this is just being in the house. Yeah. <laughs> like someone puts on a record or the, at that point it was a tape player. And if you had a tape player, that was the coolest thing in the world yeah. in the 90s. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> totally my, one of my cousins too. also drums on the table. Like he'd pull a table and start like, it's like, Tarbuka. Yeah. <laughs> like a drum so we started dancing at home so it came from there so when I came to North uh, America when I came to Vancouver mm. people would say oh are you a belly dancer right? mm. because that was the background yes that was a word that people used here yeah. it's not the word we use for it back home it's mm. just it's interesting because I don't use for me I don't use my belly that much but yeah okay, whatever. <laughs> um, so I had to label it to explain it to people right and I joined belly dancing group when I was on exchange in England and started performing but for me because I hadn't received any formal training a lot of it was like oh I do it because I enjoy it and then I had to join these different academies and classes to nice. give things a name yeah and someone was like oh we call this this and I thought oh it has a name <laughs> okay <laughs> oh um, wow so that's how it started and then slowly I kind of um migrated towards other dance forms mm -hmm. so i really enjoy partner dancing mm -hmm. uh salsa bachata different latin dances mm -hmm. uh, which i practice regularly with my partner and so does neil know that you dance he does okay has so, he attended a show has he seen you perform no, but he's he's very encouraging of it he's aware of it i've presented a few videos in a lab meeting oh a few projects we've done in the past yeah. there's one that i did with them uh, it's a it was a project instigated by nyla coleman who was mm -hmm. a phd she was in the Center of Brain Health before, and she's in Montreal now. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how I got into joining dance and, and science. I hadn't seen that connection before until yeah. she brought it up. So uh, I can't take credit for that. <laughs> uh, and so I remember we had this project where we explored 
uh, connectivity and how to mimic that with our movement. And there was a big event at the Space Center yeah. where we presented this. Mm -hmm. And there was a video that came out of it and I presented that to our lab meeting. Oh, and wow. it was very, he loved it. He said, oh, please don't change. This is oh, yeah. oh. So he's very encouraging of it. Yeah. Um, I can't speak for any other ideas he has about dance but i've seen other reactions around me mm -hmm. uh, when i say that i dance mm -hmm. uh, people see it often as a, a hobby rather than a means to exercise or a way to socialize mm -hmm. which is fine too mm -hmm. but I, I used to salsa dance a lot before and that was my main form of exercising so good dancing three four nights a week mm -hmm. was often i'd go at night mm -hmm. and you know mind you i'd be in bed by one <laughs> but people would say oh you party so much yeah. oh you, you dance every night and i'd say you know it's interesting because for me it's not just like oh i'm having fun and partying mm -hmm. it's not like a nightclub partying atmosphere for me it's yeah. i'm going there to move to connect with people mm -hmm. and explore movement yeah um, and i think there are some stereotypes and there's some judgments around that and I see people, you know, some people exercise every day, but yeah. they don't receive the same, you know, reactions to it. Aside from the perception that people have from dance that it maybe they don't see it as exercise or a way to connect with others, mm. there is a sexualization of dance. Absolutely. So I am careful now who I tell that I dance and what kind of dance I do huh. because I'm a woman and the association of dance with it, I can see a reaction sometimes and mm. people think, Oh, she does that. Do they treat you differently afterwards? It's hard to tell. I don't. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, I'm lucky that I work in an environment like the people I work with regularly know me well enough mm -hmm. that they, they don't put too much you know weight on the other things I do, like my hobbies. Mm -hmm. But I'm very cognizant and aware that uh, if I'm introducing myself to someone for the first time, if I'm going to say dance, I have to be very careful how I present that. Okay. Because also um, I don't have power. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm technician. I was a student for a long time. Yeah. I'm not in a position of power where I can say I'm going to do this and not care what people think. Mm. Unfortunately, I do have to care how I present myself in applications yeah. through my medical school applications, through my CVs and everything, um, because I don't have enough, um, you know. Like for a PI, you have a reputation to back you up, or if you're a research associate, mm. like you have a lot of other things that back you up. Mm. But here, it's I have to be very careful because any impression can either hurt me or help me. Um, and I feel like if I were doing ballet, for example, mm. as opposed to belly dance, or if I were <laughs> so much to say about that. I know. If I were a painter, like if I did other forms of art where I don't use my my body, yeah, it would probably receive a little less judgment. That's so sad. But I've received comments. I'm not going to lie. I've received some uh, comments that I, I, I thought were inappropriate related to my dancing. I've seen women would say, oh, that's objectifying, or oh, like we fought so hard to be valued for our brains. And for me, I think, well, wh why not? Can't we be both? Are we just one-dimensional creatures that are either smart or, you know, like... So that's where the judgment comes from, is that there are women who feel like, oh, but... Why do you show like your body or use your body that way and dance or whatever? Mm -hmm. Like we fought so hard not to be objectified. I think why do you, why do we have to be objectified to start with? Why is dance associated with objectification? Yeah, that's one element of it. And then what really kind of frustrates me is the freedom to choose is what people were fighting for. Mm -hmm. It's the freedom to not have your personal space infringed upon, no matter what you're wearing at any time of day, 
no matter who you're with. Exactly. That is the basis of feminism. I think there are pockets of people who look at it very differently, and everyone's entitled to their own opinion, of course. But I think it's unfair to dictate anything, to ask someone to put more clothes on or take clothes off in order for them to fit whatever mold you've created for what a woman should be. Yeah. And that, it makes me, it's sad to say this, but when women don't support other women, it makes me more upset than when a man doesn't support a woman. Yeah. And it's wrong because there should be some level of equality. But no, we're supposed to stand together. Yeah. That's unfortunately when you are in a, in a position where you haven't necessarily had the same amount of power as someone else, you have to recognize that your power is in some. It's in all of you working together and fighting for something bigger than yourself. So that disappoints me. I'm sorry that you've had that experience. Oh, it's okay. It's given me an interesting right. perspective. The first time I got quite upset because mm. I received some anger too and like harsh judgment from some women. With men, it's a little different. I think they a lot of them understand that you know that's your choice. Yeah. Some of them are scared. Oh. Too, that if they say something, I, oh, you know, understandable. Um, and some will make a demeaning or sexualized comments, and I think they're not necessarily aware that that's how it comes. Some of them will just say it and not, and I'll say, you know, what you said was not. You know, I came that way across that way, and they say, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, with women, that's when I get like the the wide spectrum from anything from you go girl to uh, how dare you do this. <laughs> um, and when I say belly dancing, yeah, I get like in people's eyes change and I get certain like different reactions. So I have to explain mm. and say, now I use Northern African dancing, for example, as a right. like Northern African traditional dancing, because that's cultural. They can't say anything about the culture or else they labeled as racist. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> but, oh, that's so strange. And that has to do with the history of belly dance too, like how it was, like in the Western world, yes. how it was, you know, portrayed and used and the Orientalist history that comes with it. So um, mm. it's something to be aware of on both sides. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. What do you think you've learned about yourself through the hardships that you feel you've faced in terms of your mental health and keeping yourself in check and keeping yourself number one in your life? Because you do need to look after yourself. I do. Um, well, I've learned that I'm, um, I'm happy that I feel I'm resilient now, mm. more resilient for it. Yeah. Uh, I'd say what I learned is not say something I learned about myself, but mm. something of uh, skill I had to hone. So I've learned to establish boundaries. Okay, um, good. Which is very important. Yeah. I think it's easier for me to do now that I'm a research technician as opposed to graduate student. Right. Because I'm on a contract. I'm paid for a certain number of hours a week. Yeah. So if I work over time, I don't feel guilty for taking that time off the day after or mm-hmm. the week after. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do keep track of my hours. There are weeks I work 42 hours. There are weeks I work 38 hours. Mm. There are weeks I work 20 hours. There are weeks I work you know, 60 hours. Yeah. So I keep track of that. Mm-hmm. I didn't as a grad student because the assumption there was that I'm not working for someone, I'm working for myself. Yeah. But then I think I should, I wish, uh, going thinking back, I wish I had sat down with myself and thought, okay, how many hours are going towards this part of my life mm-hmm. per week? Mm-hmm. And that can be that can be 80 hours, that can be 40 hours, that can be anything, as long as I'm aware of what else, what I'm taking time away from. Mm-hmm. If you're someone who, has another job who's a teaching assistant mm-hmm. you know that's six to twelve hours a week yeah uh, if you have another kind of job where you work you know in retail or whatever mm-hmm. that's another hours if you want to spend time with your partner with your friends if you have a hobby mm-hmm. if you're part of a, a non-profit mm-hmm. if you're part of a student club 
those are hours. All of it comes down to the numbers for yeah. me. So I try to turn things into numbers. Mm. How many hours is this going to take? Yeah. And and number of hours is going to take it away from something else. And that could be my sleep. That could be my health. Mm. That could be commute. Yeah. That could be time go that goes towards food. Mm-hmm. So now I learn to you know turn things into numbers mm-hmm. uh, and prioritize. And it's still work in process. Progress. Mm. Like I'm not really good at it <laughs> i get carried away by oh. passions and ideas but it's something like looking back as a grad student i wish i had done more so putting mm-hmm. those boundaries sometimes my pr would come with an idea come up with an idea say oh we should do this mm-hmm. if there's time to do it i'll do it but sometimes i would say look this is the list of projects we have a google document now mm-hmm. where i put in the list of things i'm working on and updated when progress mm-hmm. and say to them this is what i had planned if you want to add something to it you tell me what is going to compromise what are we going to take out of this to make that project happen? <laughs> and sometimes he says, yeah, let's, you know, reorganize the priorities. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you think, oh, okay, no, this is not that important. Let's leave it for a later date. Mm-hmm. So I think often PIs and supervisors get really excited and, you know, they will ask you to do things. Yeah. And I think it's up to you to put that boundary and say, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I don't want to. Um, and I mean, I'm sure there are some PIs who won't care. I've seen some PIs who don't care. Mm. Uh, I've seen someone say to his PI, I work 14 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't have time to shower anymore. Uh-huh. And his PI would not have it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, so um, that does happen, yeah. uh, unfortunately. And I'm like, I, my, my heart goes for you. Everybody who's listening to this is <laughs> in this situation. Mm. But the reality is that there are PIs who are like this and there are PIs who are not. There are PIs who will listen if you let them know this is what's going on. Yeah. Sometimes, if you're not a lot in the lab, you might not know how much time something takes. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like, oh, can you do this? And it sounds like, oh, one day. But it's actually work of five or six days. Mm-hmm. So making sure your PI actually knows how much time things. Yeah, and they do need reminders the more time they spend away from the lab. Yeah. And it's, it's okay to have that check-in with them and go, listen, this can't happen in the time frame that you think it's going to happen. And do it in a respectful way. It doesn't have to be oh, yeah. confrontational or anything like that. But I, I have noticed that PIs who have just completed their most recent postdoc or something like that have a much better understanding that, no, this is a five-day affair versus a two-week affair or even longer than that. Mm-hmm. Whereas individuals who've been around for 20-plus years, yeah, they're just like, but you can get it done. But you're the limitation like you are the person who is preventing it from happening yeah. why don't you just you know buckle down and do it when that's not necessarily how it works out so it does not and if yeah. you make it happen very fast they will expect that you make it yes happen. yes right? even if you try it you pushed yourself to the limit to do that <laughs> so there's one project i remember because i was going away for a long time mm-hmm. so i discussed it with my pi and he said we have this happening i said you know i will move heaven and earth and make it happen in that week mm-hmm. i won't sleep mm-hmm. so i made it happen mm-hmm. and i was in a similar project came around and they asked oh can we do this again i said no i did not sleep that week if that's what you want i can make it happen but i need to take the week after off mm-hmm. Because for me to make it happen in that deadline, that came at a high cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And me not sleeping one night means I need two days to recover. <laughs> no, unfortunately, it doesn't mean I need eight hours. And, you know, um, so kind of putting things in perspective and it can be done in a very respectful and collaborative way yeah. where it's not like, oh, I need this, but more like, okay, this is what this is about. Mm-hmm. Let's come up with a plan together yeah. to make this happen in a way that's respectful of 
your goals, but also respectful of my health. Yeah, and your time. And my time, mm -hmm. right? So often people like work, work, work and say, oh, I'm such a hardworking person. I work so hard, but they keep pushing. And I say, you know, they will keep pushing. Mm -hmm. That's what a manager, that's what a supervisor does. Yeah. Because I've been in that role too. I will, you know, you push because you have other another person who's asking you for yourself. <laughs> No, I love yeah. you, or you have, you know, some deliverables you're aiming for. Mm -hmm. So they'll keep pushing, and it's up to you to say no or, you know, put in reality check. So I learned that from my grad study, and I'm trying to apply that currently. Mm -hmm. And I do acknowledge that as a technician, you're in a very different position because you are on a contract or an employee. Um, but it's something that is possible, I think, for grad students mm -hmm. to aim for. It's just a matter of us being aware of what our rights are, <laughs> that we're not machines. Yes. Um, and hopefully there'll be some efforts from PIs as well mm -hmm. to, you know, make that, uh, create that space for our conversation. Have you found that the external community was beneficial to your mental health and the way you felt about yourself in your program? Yes. So this actually, yeah, this feeds in what I just said as well, mm -hmm. because my partner is in uh, engineering and business. Mm -hmm. So he would comment sometimes and say, you worked really late yesterday. Why are you going at eight today? Mm -hmm. And I say, oh, because this and this. And just seeing how things are done in other places, yeah. in other businesses, in other companies. Not that we want to adopt a company model, but kind of seeing how employees are treated mm -hmm. or how they work. That was really helpful because it made me feel less guilty mm -hmm. about how I was going to approach things. So that, that had a lot of support, I think. Mm -hmm. Nothing in academia because we we think this is how it is. There's a lot of guilt if you don't come on the weekend. Yeah. Like, oh, I didn't come, I feel guilty. Yeah. Or I left at five yesterday. Yeah. So seeing something different and that was possible mm -hmm. in a different setting really helped me think, okay, what are the good things I can take from that environment mm -hmm. and apply it here? Yeah. Uh, so that was very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, my extracurriculars were dance and I like painting as well, and like other things that like I work on profits. So that was helpful because also kept me in check of why I'm doing the work I do. Mm -hmm. So working with seniors, for example, they often ask, "Oh, what is the research like? Yeah. Uh, what is research like? What are you guys doing for Alzheimer's?" And mm -hmm. uh, that motivated me to work harder yeah. and uh, to keep integrity as well. Like I think that's important mm -hmm. that. You know, this is why we do science. This is why we do good science. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's not just about my thesis. It's not just about papers. Yeah. It's about the people who are going to benefit or not benefit. From Absolutely. It. I wanted to take the opportunity to tell you all about a recent offshoot of Coronal Science, created especially for written media, called The Monologues. The Monologues are a blog series written by you, the audience and are meant to provide a safe space to share your feelings, your ideas, and your experiences of your journey to today. Reach out if you're interested in writing a piece via email, herroyalscience at gmail.com, or on social media, at her underscore science, on Twitter and on Instagram. As always, we're very grateful for the funding we receive from the Javad Nava Fahiyan Center for Brain Health at the University of British Columbia.